What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us, Senator Bernie Sanders in Washington, D.C. Senator Sanders, welcome back. Good to be with you, Tom. We are working, as you know, what I think is the most consequential piece of legislation for working families since FDR and the New Deal and the Great Depression. And, you know, what we're trying to do, and I think what is profound about what we're trying to do is we're trying to take a hard look at the reality of American life today. Not saying, you know, we've got to cut this, we've got to do that, but we're saying what is going on in America today? What does it mean that tens of millions of working families are struggling? What does it mean that the people on top are doing phenomenally well and we have massive levels of income and wealth inequality? What does it mean that we're the only major country on earth not to have paid family and medical leave, that we've got... Almost 600,000 people are homeless, and so many people spend half of their income on housing. The people can't afford child care, can't afford pre-K. What does it mean that elderly people can't afford the hearing aids they need, the dental care, the eyeglasses that they need? Uh, what does it mean that we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs? What does it mean that our infrastructure, physical infrastructure, is crumbling? So what we're doing now, which is kind of unique in our lifetime, Tom, I think, is really taking a hard look. Now, people can disagree. Are we right on this or wrong on this? How much should we be spending? But we've never had a moment when we're actually looking at the real problems, including, obviously, climate and the devastation being wrought by climate change, where we're actually looking at the real problems and saying, okay, how do we address them? I've never seen that in my lifetime. That's what we're trying to do. Specifically, you're talking about this $3.5 trillion infrastructure yes. legislation Correct. you want to pass by reconciliation. What can people who are listening right now do to support your efforts in that regard? As of now, there are no, I mean, and this is really, I said, look, everybody knows my political views, but it is really, honestly, a sad state of affairs when there is not one Republican, not one in the Senate, as of this moment, prepared to vote that raise taxes on the rich and large corporations and use that money to advance the needs of working families. So I think if you live in a state with Republican senators, get the word out. I don't know that you're going to turn them around, but at least expose them to other people. 
Mm. You know, you got the Republican Party. Oh, we are now the party of the working class. Really? Really? And that's why you're turning your back on every need that working families have. Expose them. And in the Democratic state, just make sure that the Democratic senators, senators are prepared to be as tough and as strong uh, as they have to be to pass this bill. Yeah. Now, with reconciliation, there isn't as much of a concern about the filibuster. But uh, Republicans in the Senate are also filibustering an attempt to put legislation into place that would basically guarantee the right of all Americans to vote. Huge issue. Tom, you've known me for years. I don't mean to be overly partisan. My views are my views. But we now have a Republican Party X number of years ago, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, that was a center-right party, you know, which believed in limited government, all that stuff. And that's fine. That's the point of view. But what you have now is a party that has moved away from almost any ideology to become a cult-like party intimidated by Donald Trump, a party today which many of its leaders, not all, but many of its leaders still maintain the lie that Trump actually won the election, which is why they're trying to undermine American democracy and make it harder for people to vote. These are Right now, the West Coast is burning in Vermont, where you used to live. Mm-hmm. We're getting particulate matter in Vermont, 3,000 miles away from Oregon. From our fires here, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and they're denying the need, whether they deny climate change, some of them do. Others say, well, we can't do anything about it. I mean, you have a party which is more concerned now about suppressing the vote. Uh, Some of them, not all, again, maintaining these fatal lies about uh, vaccines, not being clear that their supporters should come forward and get the vaccination. Something like 99 percent of the people who are dying today are unvaccinated from COVID. You know, so that is where that party is. And, And right now in the Senate, it is unlikely we're going to get one vote to do what the is enormously popular, what the American working class wants. And by the way, when we do all these things, rebuild the crumbling infrastructure, deal with climate, deal with child care, make community colleges tuition free, finally do paid family and medical leave, when we home health care so that in an aging society, people can get care at home rather than be forced to go into a nursing home, lower the cost of prescription drugs. All of these issues, Tom, are enormously popular. They're Mm -hmm. enormously popular. But they require standing up to powerful special interests. And uh, apparently we're not going to have one Republican who is prepared to do that. One in five Americans have now gone into collection. They don't just have medical debt, but it's been turned over to right. debt collectors, so they're being yeah. hounded at all hours of the day and night. Unbelievable. They're, you know, they're, they're having their credit rating trashed. Some employers don't hire people with bad credit ratings. This will be on their records for years. Half, according to this new study from the Commonwealth Fund, half of the people who were diagnosed with COVID, not the people who died of it, just half the people are struggling to pay their medical bills. And I understand that there's a health component to this infrastructure yeah, legislation that you're trying to get through reconciliation. Well, Tom, thank, you for raising, thank you for raising this issue. You know, when I ran for president, I called for the ending of all of this medical debt. And you could do that a lot cheaper than it, it looks like, uh, because you could buy that debt for a fraction of the cost, mm-hmm. the real, the nominal cost of it. I, I'll never forget doing a town meeting in Iowa. That's where we were. And, and people coming forward, a woman coming forward 
where she was being hounded by bill collectors where her own kid was still in the hospital, question of whether the kid would live or die. Uh, and, and all of that speaks to, and, and by the way, you, you, you talk to people in Europe or in, in, in you know Japan and, and other countries, and you say, what are you doing about medical debt? They don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Oh, I had a caller from Canada and a caller from Paris, France, both saying, you know, medical debt? <laughs> we don't have that here. They don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. They don't know what the word deductible is about. They don't right. know what premium is about. They don't know what copayment is about right. in many countries. You know, so all of this speaks to what is a dysfunctional, and I underline the word, healthcare system in which we spend, as you know, uh, twice as much per capita as we do in Canada, for example, and, and many other countries, and yet we end up with 90 million people uninsured or underinsured. You go to a hospital, you know, no matter almost what your coverage is, you're going to come out with, with deep debt, you're going to get hounded, your credit rating is at risk. Uh, it is an insane system. It is an insane system designed simply to benefit the pharmaceutical industry, which charges us by far, by far the highest prices in the world. And, and the health insurance companies. So the good news is health insurance and the drug companies make billions in profit every year. They pay their CEOs outlandish profits. They have money to spend on lobbying and campaign contributions. But for ordinary people, this system is an unmitigated disaster. Now, in this bill, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it does everything that I want it to do. It doesn't. Uh, you know, my views are not the you know, views shared by every member of the Democratic caucus. Uh, nor on this issue by the president. I believe in a Medicare for all single-payer program funded publicly and providing health care without any out-of-pocket expenses, which would eliminate the whole issue of, of medical debt. But this is what we do do. Uh, number one, uh, we will expand Medicare to cover dental cost, hearing aids, uh, and eyeglasses. A lot of seniors cannot afford dental care. Dentures are quite expensive. Hearing aids very expensive. Eyeglasses expensive. So we will cover that as part of Medicare. Uh, what we will also do is at a time when in many states Republican leadership has not been prepared to expand Medicare, Medicaid, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, we're going to figure out a way, and it's very complicated legislatively, to make sure that those people who today should be in Medicaid but are not are able to get the health care that they need. We also want to extend the subsidies of the rescue plan uh, to make uh, the Affordable Care Act more reasonable. Uh, and we want to lower the cost of prescription drugs. So those are some of the issues we are dealing with in the current legislation. That's extraordinary. It's important stuff. You are doing God's work, uh, Senator Sanders. It's and it's so nice to hear from you. Thank you so much for for uh, giving us a okay, show. Tom. Great talking. Okay, to take you. care. Thank you. Keep Bye. up the great work. So uh, the op-ed that I wrote today for uh, HartmanReport.com is, is titled, Healthcare Parasites Are Sucking Americans Dry. And there's some just absolutely startling statistics. First of all, I want to make the point. The health insurance companies in most of the developed countries in the world really unnecessary, at least for primary health care. The one outlier here is Switzerland. In Switzerland, everybody has to have health insurance. All the health insurance companies are required to be nonprofits. The federal government pays for the health insurance premiums for low income and poor people. 
but uh, you, you buy it through a nonprofit company. In pretty much every other developed country in the world, there is some sort of a national system that you know, has, it varies from country to country. Taiwan is probably the purest single-payer system in the world. Uh, Germany is a far more mixed system. France is much more single-payer. England's is, is socialist. You know, it's a socialized medicine in as much as, or you could call it that loosely, in as much as the government actually owns the hospitals and, and uh, the doctors work for the, all the physicians work for the, or not for most of the physicians work for the National Health Service for the government. Um, but in those countries, the only health insurance companies that exist are companies that either fill in the cracks for things like dental or eyeglasses, or uh, companies that provide high-end health insurance so that you know, if you get sick, you don't end up in a two-person two to a room, uh, room in the hospital or in a ward. Instead, you get your own private suite, or you have a, uh, an air, you know, a, a private jet air taxi that brings you back to your country if you're out of the country and you get sick. I mean, that's pretty much it. So we've got these parasites attached to our backs called health insurance companies, and they don't really pay for all our health costs. And as a consequence of that, one in five Americans right now has their medical debt in collection. One in five. I mean, just think of the people on your street. One out of five houses, or actually probably more than that because one out of five people in the United States. Um, one out of five of the people living in your apartment building, one out of five Americans are, ha are getting phone calls in the middle of the night from, from uh, bill collectors, are being harassed mercilessly, are, are having their wages garnished, are having their credit ruined, which makes it harder for them to get jobs in the future, and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. One in five Americans. And, one in, and, and half of Americans, this is a new study, by the way, that just came out from the Commonwealth Fund, and the links to it are all in the article over at HartmanReport.com. Half of all Americans who become infected with COVID are now, quote, struggling with medical debt, end quote. I mentioned some of the statistics out of in my new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. I just got my advanced copy. In fact, I just got a case of them. We're going we're gonna to start giving them away on the air. It won't show up in the bookstores for another, I think, about another month, maybe four or five weeks. But, uh, you know, it is available for pre-order and all that kind of thing. Um, but in that book, I talk about, in fact, the opening chapter. The average American family is spending about $3,000 a year more on health care broadly, which includes insurance, pharmaceuticals, and doctors and hospitals and things. The average American is fa family is spending $3,000 a year more than do people in Canada or Europe or Japan or South Korea or Taiwan or Australia or New Zealand. $3,000 a year more. Why? So parasites like, you know, people like Bill McGuire, this, the former CEO of United Healthcare, who walked away with $1.6 billion, can become morbidly rich. Michael Hiltzik, writing for the Los Angeles Times, talking about medical debt, he said, it's all, medical debt is also unique to the United States among developed countries. When experts from Japan and Europe were asked by the PBS program Frontline about their prevalence of medical bankruptcy in their countries, some had trouble even comprehending the question. I mean, let that sink in, right? You ask somebody in Japan, well, how bad is the medical debt program, problem in Japan? And their, and their response is, what is medical debt? Honest to God? We, and, and we do have two single-payer systems. We have Medicare and Medicaid. 
and we could expand either one of them to everybody in America and, and strengthen them so they're really good comprehensive programs. And in fact, the, the, you know, this, this uh, $3.5 trillion infrastructure legislation that Joe Biden is pushing and Bernie Sanders is pushing actually gets a start on doing that. Because, hey, our healthcare is part of our, you know, we have a healthcare infrastructure as well. There are 12 states right now that, have, that refuse to expand Medicaid. Every single one of them has a legislature controlled entirely by Republicans. Why? Because the Republicans are the toadies of the health care billionaires. We've got to get these parasites off our backs. Ray in Toronto, Ontario. Hey, Ray, what's on your mind today? The American medical system just shocked me. I, I wanted to go through and tell you what my experience in Canada has been because I've had a lot of experience. Okay, if I could just reset well, this before you do, Ray, uh, for people who might have just tuned in. In the previous hour, I was pointing out that one in five Americans right now are in collection for medical debt. Half of all the Americans who became infected with COVID are now struggling to pay their medical debt. And uh, I mean, which is just mind boggling. I mean, and, and one third of all GoFundMe sites are, I've muted. Are, are for medical debt. It's out of sync. Ray, yeah, don't try to look at YouTube. Just, just talk to me on the phone. So Ray, uh, go ahead. So when I was uh, roughly 40, I was diagnosed with a genetic disease called hemochromatosis, pre-existing condition, right? Mm -hmm. Um, what that does is it raises your iron level, it took out my liver, and it took out my pancreas. Um, I basically spent till about 48, I was in and out of the hospital at least once a month, and these were multi-day stays. And that was for about eight years, and this finally ended up with me getting um, a liver transplant, which coincidentally also fixed the hemochromatosis, which my liver was the source of. Mm -hmm. The biggest expense through all this fun was $45 for ambulance rides, which I'd had a few of. And that was the biggest expense I had. Right now, I'm a type 1 diabetic. And I, I need to take anti-rejection drugs for my liver, both of which I pay nothing for. The government, it, it's given to me by the government. This is all because you live in Canada. You're a Canadian citizen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, after my second degree, I was thinking of moving to the States. It would have been the biggest mistake of my life because had I have done that today, I would have been broke, homeless, and dead. Right. That's and amazing. I just you're you're talking about one in five people being in collection. That's insane. It is. It really I is. Mean, we have we have these parasites attached to our backs. They're called health insurance companies. And and uh, you know I, I realize that you have some small health insurance companies in Canada that kind of fill in the edges on on your programs. You know for dental or eyeglasses or whatever. But yeah. uh, you don't have to deal with these with these companies. I mean you've you've got. You've got basically a single-payer system there in Ontario. Yeah, and and what does it cost you, by the way? How much do you pay? What how much do you pay every month for your health insurance? Nothing. The, I oh, don't. We don't have health insurance. I don't pay anything for your Medicare. For my Medicare, no, right. it's it's free. Wow. I can walk into the hospital today, spend a week. <laughs> Thank God, I don't need to do that, but it won't cost me a dime. Wow. 
Every American needs to hear that phone call. Ray, thank and you. And that's why I, I called to tell your, most of your viewers that there is a much better system out there. Yeah, yeah, and so, you've got it. And you've got good luck it. to you and your viewers. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for the well wishes, and thanks for watching the program. I do appreciate it. Uh, Ari in Eureka, California. Hey, Ari, what's on your mind? Yeah, about health insurance and, and why Spoh News might be changing their tune. Mm -hmm. I think health insurance companies have figured out that more people are not getting vaccinated than they counted on, and that means they're going to have to pay out more in claims, no matter how much they, how, no matter how many claims they deny. Mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, so I think health insurance companies said, wait, we got to put the brakes on here. So you think that the Republicans who have been fighting um, any attempt to, to diminish the role of health and for-profit health insurance companies in America, that those, as, because they're ba basically bought and paid for by big pharma and big health insurance and everybody else, that those Republican politicians got a phone call a week or so ago from the health insurance donors saying, you know, it, this is starting to seriously cost us money and we can't figure out a way to call COVID a pre-existing condition, or we can't figure out a way not to have to pay these expenses. So please start encouraging people to get vaccinated. Is that your theory then, Ari? Right, right, because it's not crashing the economy enough mm -hmm. for them to kick the Biden administration out. Right. So if they can't crash the economy that much, they might as well save some money for their, their you know, evil overlords. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. Also, uh, by your Canadian caller, mm -hmm. yeah, um, I own a business, but I have a part-time job just to get health care, for which I pay $1,200 a month. That covers nothing. My husband has Medicare. He pays $350 a month. He never gets a bill. Yeah. Well, Why yeah. can't I buy that? Yeah, Why exactly. I'm I'm on Medicare and it's just wonderful. I you know I never get a bill for anything, and I've had you know I've, I've even had surgery on Medicare. Um, my employees, we provide health insurance through a for-profit company, and it costs our company a fortune to pay for their health insurance, and they still face co-pays and deductibles and minimum fees and high drug costs, and we've got one of the best health insurance policies that we could find. And right. I mean, you know, you, you say, yes, I've got a great health insurance policy and we and we pay 100 percent of the cost for our employees, by the way. Some employers, you know, in fact, most employers pay less than 100 percent. Many of them pay, you know, 60 percent or 50 percent or whatever. And still, you know, the people who work for me get stuck with medical expenses. And yes. I mean, it's, it's just it's just nuts. It's yeah, just, we have to get rid of the evil, the evil insurance overlords. Yeah. They, they need well, to be put out well, of a job. Good luck. I mean, they, they, these, this is an industry that on a quarterly basis shows billion-dollar profits. On a quarterly basis. And then, you know, they recycle a certain amount of that money to, to the politicians, the, the entire Republican Party, and there are quite a few Democrats that are taking money from these people, and that's why we can't have nice things. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. 
Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Kathy in Seattle. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hey, I've heard you talk about the Medigap program before, and I've been interested in it, and I've looked into it. But I can't seem to find, um, I, I don't know how to hook onto it without going through a private provider. Is there, some, is there something that I'm not missing about this? Can I go directly to the government or something? How, uh, you know, I, I just don't know what to do about that. Yeah. And I'd like to get it. Sure. The, yeah, uh, yeah, because we all need to avoid Medicare Advantage. All those ads on TV every day for Medicare Advantage are there because it's it's a massive ripoff that makes a lot of money for the insurance companies, and that's how they're paying for all those ads. You want to avoid that. Um, but Medigap, when Medicare was created back in 1967, the Republicans said, we can't pay 100% of people's costs because if we do that, seniors will abuse the system. They'll hang out in the doctor's office all day long. So they've got to have some, quote, skin in the game. So they put an 80% hole excuse me, a 20% hole in Medicare. Medicare only pays for 80% of all expenses. Medicare's part A and B, you know, do- hospital and doctor expenses. So that remaining 20% gets filled in with a, a insurance from actual insurance companies called Medigap plans. Um, the way that I got mine was I looked at the uh, websites of a half a dozen different insurance companies and uh, pick the policy that I liked from a company that I like, and I pay them directly. I, you know, I don't have an agent who does it for me. Um, it's just a very straightforward process. I, I would add that when you're looking at insurance companies, insurance companies that have the word mutual in their name are a different kind of insurance company than regular insurance companies. You know how um, uh, credit unions aren't you know, there's no owner for a credit union. Every, if you invest money in a credit union, you become one of its owners, basically. They're, they're like co-ops. Um, the mutual insurance companies are the same way. Ben Franklin started the first mutual insurance company in the United States in Philadelphia in 1757. And they still exist. In fact, the one he started still exists in Boston. And so uh, I always have a preference for mutual insurance companies because I know that you know, they're not paying dividends to their stockholders, so they're going to they're be more concerned with me as a policyholder. 
Um, so, you know, there's uh, Mutual of Omaha is one. There, uh, I know Aetna and, um, you know, uh, uh, United Healthcare, who I just don't like or trust as a company, but they have a policy that they sell through AARP. Um, it, there's a bunch of them. And, and so, Kathy, I would say just, you know, uh, start, start browsing their websites. You can also, uh, sometimes if you put a couple of different names in, be sure you use Medigap, not Medicare, um, into a search. Uh, you, you can find people who are kind of ranking them and rating them. Did I answer your question? Well, um, I guess to a degree, that's kind of what I've already put together. But I still, you still have to go to a major insurance or provider to get it. You can't yes. go directly to the government, is what I'm saying. That's correct. The government does not provide Medigap insurance. You have to buy it in the private marketplace, you know, because okay. the Republicans insisted on it. So, I mean, this okay. is, you know, Bernie's uh, Medicare for all. His, the step one was do away with that 20% hole, right? Make it 100%. Mary in uh, Mill Creek, Washington. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? I wanted to talk about an experience we had this last week with my daughter for uh, insurance. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because what I saw happen as a result of it is the people who heard the story from her, uh, their attitude was, screw universal health care. This is going to suck. Now, I am a proponent of universal health care, but I wanted to share with you and have, see if you have some insights you could offer. First of all, she was on the state exchange. She's a small business owner, and she picked up one of these policies. I'm a nurse. I've never even heard of the insurance. What ended up happening is the noon, the day before her hip replacement surgery, they canceled because they couldn't come up with a, the company was so small, the insurance company, that uh, they didn't have contracts set up with any surgical centers in this area. So they had to negotiate all those terms uh, individually. And so right. what ended up happening is they signed off and approved for the surgeon and for the anesthesiologist, but not the surgical center. What we found out was, well, you know, the surgical center's got to make some money, right? So then in the meantime, what we found out as we dug through was this state policy, all they are is just somebody who is implementing state Medicare. So they're not going to reimburse for anything more than what Medicare reimburses. Not Medicare, but Medicaid, hmm. I mean. Medicaid, and yeah. so, and that's, of course, not going to be enough. So my concern is people came away and said, well, God, if this is what the state, if this is what state insurance is going to be or the universal health care is going to be, you know, this sucks. And I kept saying, no, 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 no. Keep in mind that the insurance, their job, um, you know, we need to keep these insure, or we, if we keep insurance companies, if that's the way people are going to go, because kind of Biden care, Biden healthcare is not saying Medicare for all. They're saying there is a place for uh, public option, but also insurance. My experience working in the industry and with this is that they do not think Medicare for all uh, cannot exist, coexist uh, efficiently with Medicare for all. So it's like we're going to have to, I mean, as much as I appreciate how uh, Biden is trying to bridge the gap with the progressives and the liberals, um, uh-huh. I, I get that. But we've got to figure something out because this transition and doing it both ways is going to kill 
universal health care. Because if people keep going through this kind of crap, when you're sick mm. and you're vulnerable and you've got to try to go and fight to get coverage, yeah. people are going to go, if this is what I'm getting from the state, I'm not going to do it. Which is the well, wrong, I'm, that's a very shallow takeaway. That's, a, that's the yeah. shallow takeaway. But I, you know, how do agree. we get past it? How do we get past Well, I think that God, we, need, we just need to make it very, very clear that we need Medicare for all, Mary, and that we need to reform mm-hmm. Medicare so that it no longer has a 20% hole in it that requires Medigap insurance. And we need to outlaw Medicare Advantage, which is, um, you know, a privatized form of Medicare where they, they play the same games. They throw people off. A friend of mine has uh, uh, prostate cancer in New York and can't get treatment because he has a Medicare Advantage plan and he can't he can't get a Medigap policy any longer because once you sign up for Medicare Advantage, unless you're really, really lucky, you can never get off it. And then they've got you for the rest of your life and you're screwed. So it's a a difficult one. And Mary, you've identified a real serious problem. And I think at some point, the American people are going to go, enough already. You know, just give us a program like every other developed country in the world where we can get health care. Chuck in Scottsdale, Arizona. Hey, Chuck, what's up? Yeah, good morning. I was uh, had a question. What if uh, private insurance was to just cover all the routine health problems, you know, like the appendicitis, called metas, et cetera? Uh, wouldn't it keep premiums lower and because they'd have lower expenditures and all that? However, if you have a catastrophic case, that would have to go to a national pool like Medicare or whatever to avoid, you know, people getting bankrupt and everything. And would that work? And I've talked to some hardcore republicans that thought that was a that thought was a pretty good idea what what do you think well that's basically what trump's plan is is that you know catastrophic care insurance be what everybody has and uh you know it doesn't kick in until you know you hit five ten fifteen maybe fifty or a hundred thousand dollars in expenses depending on who you know which which day of the week he's talking about it and which republican plan you're pointing to but the problem chuck is before the coronavirus and before you know 30 40 million americans lost their jobs we had a situation in the united states where fewer than 40 percent of americans could have dealt with a $400 expense. Fewer than a third of Americans could have dealt with a $1,000 expense. So, uh, you know, without, without, you know, significant financial dislocation or even the, you know, the, the risk of a loss of housing. So uh, going for catastrophic insurance in order to try to keep insurance prices down is going to doom well more, you know, well over half the population. And that's, that's, the, that, that's the reason why Democrats are opposed to that. Cole in Denver. Hey, Nicole, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but if we lose Social Security insurance, we'll also lose disability insurance. And to my knowledge, there's no private insurance policy that you can buy at any price that'll give you long-term disability insurance, guaranteed income for life, and cover your health care. You're correct on all points. And, and that's the thing, you know, when I talk to young people, uh, you know, and they say, well, I don't care about Social Security. It's not going to be there when I get old anyway. I'm like, Social Security is covering you right now. If you're 17 years old, you've got a policy that will provide for you for the rest of your life if you get in a car accident and you end up paralyzed, for example, as has sure. happened to a friend of mine. Yes. So, and yeah. Um, yeah. there's no private insurance policy that you can buy to replace that. So just wanted to remind your viewers how important Social Security is. Amen. 
Amen. Well done, Nicole. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Roy in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Roy, what's up? Tom, I have a solution for getting us on universal health care. Okay, okay, one, this is, everybody says this, just back up the age from 65 to 62, 60 every year. But this is the most important thing. Go by occupation. The important, difficult, dangerous jobs we have getting people for that foreigners are doing now. We get, we if you are five years in construction or forestry or fishing or farming, you are on Medicare. Do it by, and we'll gradually get everybody on. I figure it'll take 10 years if you go back up the age and do the occupation thing, adding occupations where Americans are needed to do the jobs and their physical jobs, all the physical jobs. Right, that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. You know, it, it would be a relatively simple tweak, I believe, to the Medicare law, and I'm basing this on Robert Ball, the guy who wrote that law, saying back in the 1960s that it would be a relatively minor tweak to change the age of eligibility of 65. Now Reagan has raised it up to 67, but whatever, uh, to change yeah. it from 65 down to zero. You know, And so I yeah. think it would be a relatively small tweak to the law to say that if you are designated an essential worker during the pandemic, which yep. would be people who work in grocery stores, people who are uh, you know, working yep. in hospitals, people who yep. are on the front lines, the delivery That's people, the, the Uber drivers, right. all of right. these folks, if you have been designated an essential worker during the pandemic, you are eligible to join Medicare for the rest of your life, regardless of your age, right that, now. That that's the essential principle. I should be running it. I also have other ideas. It should be there should be zones, not by states. When states get a hold of this federal money, there's so much waste like insurance. It should be like New England and the Mid Atlantic states. Uh, one Oh yeah, one doing office. things regionally. Yeah, yeah well, regionally, I, I'm with exactly. you. Roy, Roy, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call and thanks for sharing that. David in Pittsburgh. Hey David, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I have a theory I've been thinking about for a long time. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. One, we need to regulate the banking and insurance industry. Stop talking about it. Regulate it. The other thing is Medicare for all. We need to pass Medicare for all. The third leg is we need to legalize all illegal drugs in this country and tax them, have the government tax them like they do the alcohol and tobacco industry. And this is the major cause of the big city problems with the violence that are going on. Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, they're all fighting for that industry of dark money and illegal drugs. And that's my theory. And I'd like to get a feedback from you on that. Uh, number one, if you're going to try to regulate the banking and insurance industries, you are going up against, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in lobbying and oh, lobbyist efforts. Uh, you know, the, the same thing, uh, you know, I've basically the same thing with any kind of regulation of anything. And, uh, but, and, and with regard to drugs, I, you know, when the government in, it taxes something, they're basically also endorsing it. And, uh, right. I'm, I'm of two minds on this. You know, we have a serious problem in this country with tobacco. We are still losing about 400,000 people every year 
from using tobaccos. I'm so this is a drug that we have legalized and that we tax, and therefore it's available in stores all over the country. And it's killing about a half a million Americans every single year. Um, I, I'm guessing that if we were to legalize the psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, those kind of drugs, um, if we were to, and, and sell them and tax them, that it wouldn't kill anything close to that. Uh, however, I think that if we were to legalize heroin or methamphetamine or cocaine, you probably would start seeing really, really high levels of addiction. And I mean, these are serious, serious drugs. And just look at what happened when, when you know, the Sackler family uh, with Purdue Pharma just decided to promote them through doctors. Um, you know, it became like one of the 10 leading causes of death in a lot of states. So um, I'm, I'm, what I'm in favor of, David, is what we've done here in Oregon and what Portugal did, which is you decriminalize all drugs possession of small quantities. So use is no longer a crime, um, but you criminalize the sale, the, the sale of it or the possession of large quantities, commercial size quantities of, of the drugs that are more dangerous. You're not going to cure the uh, problem, though. I, you know, I get that. And, the, in, and as long as there is poverty, there is going to be black market activity. There's going to be underground market activity, and it's going to be activity where people are buying and selling things that people want that are not you know, uh, generally available, whether it's whether it's drugs, whether it's stolen goods, whether it's guns, uh, you know, you're going to have that. I, I think that the way to to deal with the drug problem is to turn it into a medical problem, which is what like like I said, what we've done in Oregon, what Portugal has done. And the way that you deal with the uh, the, the the underground economy, essentially, in poor neighborhoods and in big cities is by reviving them, is by reviving those communities, bringing, bringing our factories back from, from uh, you know, China and Mexico, um, putting our cities back together. There, there, was not, there were not big drug problems back 40, 50 years ago when people could make serious money and you know, work in a GM. It was not the case. It's not going to work because you got the NAFTA agreement that was signed 30 years ago, and, and it just ruined well, I mean, I, we're, we're engaging to a certain extent here in fantasy, David. If you think we're going to regulate the banks and the insurance industry overnight, and, and, and then we're going to decriminalize and legalize drugs. So in that, in that hypothetical world, in that fantasy world, that, that, that's how I would do it. But, David, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the call. It's thoughtful stuff. Ron in Chicago. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today? Yes, uh, Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, uh, right after his... Uh $5.5 billion with the B space flight. He told the uh, reporters that uh, I want to take and thank all the Amazon employees who paid for this. Uh, yes, all the non-union minimum wage workers who helped me make over $250 million a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, It was that was a, a pretty shocking. The, he, he said there were two things that Bezos said that, that caused me to think that this is one of those guys who has surrounded himself with yes men. Um, you know, he lives in a bubble where everybody tells him how wonderful he is all the time and every idea he has is brilliant. And the first was thanking his 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 workers for for propelling him into outer space. I guarantee you not any none of them, uh, <laughs> very few of them had any say in that. And number two is he said, why don't we move all our polluting industries into outer space? Right. You know, this this is this is not world class intelligence. It's just not world class intelligence. Vic in Stockton, California. Hey, Vic, what's on your mind today? Tom, I'd like to get your thoughts about the topic of voting against your own self-interest. I'll take a comments off the air. So here's my quick rant and question. As a Democratic Socialist, it really pains me to say that, you know, it's not just the Republicans and corporations that are making American life difficult and dysfunctional for most Americans. It's also the voting public itself. How the heck 
the two of the most evil Republican congressmen, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, get reelected? Why did over 80 percent of voters in Appalachia, of all places, vote for Trump? Don't you think it's time for the Democratic Party to do a forensic analysis of why their message isn't, of why their messaging isn't working? among very gullible citizen voters. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I'm with you, Vic. Uh, the, the Democratic Party's messaging has been a disaster for years. That's why I wrote Cracking the Code back in 2008, uh, just in time for that election, to, you know, saying, here, Democrats, here's some strategies, here are techniques. This is, this is stuff right out of psychology and out of the advertising industry, both fields that I have worked in. This is how you do it. And, you know, some, some Democratic politicians use that book and use that information, but the party and, and others largely ignored it. And, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, much to their detriment. So, yeah, I'm with you. Vic, thank you. Bruce in Petaluma, California. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind? I thank you for your wisdom. You, you impress me so much every day I watch you. Thank you. Um, the thing I'd like to mention is we should relabel billionaires as tax avoider, indebted to us guy, whatever your name is, instead of any kind of a, a laudable hero guy. The adjective that I've been using is morbidly, I, you know, the morbidly rich, because, good. you know, when, when we're all familiar with the application of that word to obesity. And what it means is it has reached the point where it's actually causing damage. And it's a disease. yeah, it's a exactly. Disease. It's a disease process. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, we anybody in this country who's worth over a billion dollars, in my opinion, is morbidly rich. Yeah, what do they need all that money for? They can't possibly use it. And it gets what I look at it wealth as dammed up money in in lakes that are not accessible to the public. That's exactly so right. These guys have all this wealth never gets into the economy. So our economy, they brag about how rich we are in this country. No, we're not. These there's 20 guys with all the money and they're not spending it. They're not using it. It's yeah. just sitting in in a holding somewhere. And, and it's never get dribbles down into the, the use. So it's useless, really. Yeah. It's turned into garbage, really. No, you're absolutely and right. It, and, 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 it, and, it, and, and what happens with, you know, the, I think we've got about 800 billionaires in the United States, and then there's, there's around 10, 10 to 15,000 families that are worth more than $100 million. And then you've got, you know, a couple hundred thousand families that are worth more than $10 million. Um, that, that most of that money uh, particularly with the people who are worth more than a hundred million or more than a billion, um, you know, most of that money is not actually circulating in the economy anymore. And and uh, yeah, you know, the, the international estimates are that something like seven trillion dollars is hidden in offshore tax shelters and, and in ways that you know doesn't benefit anybody except dynastic wealth. Uh, so these people are accumulating <laughs> enough money that you know for five generations nobody in their family is going to have to work and and you know it's all we're all we're doing is creating generation after generation after generation of paris hilton so not to trash and paris hilton yeah, but, i mean you know they're really? using it against us yeah. they're using that wealth against the, the american people they and, and you the can way. you can make that argument and in fact the ones who are funding political activity particularly on the right in my opinion are doing that bruce thank you for the call zeke in portland hey zeke what's on your mind today very disturbing piece uh, off the BBC. The BBC guy was interviewing a gentleman in Afghanistan who has worked with our Navy SEALs for the last five years. I heard that. This man worked with the Navy SEALs for five years. The SEALs admit freely that he saved their lives on several occasions. He is not being allowed. The State, the State Department has a program that is supposed to, in theory, facilitate 
people like this man getting out of the country alive. He has been told by the Taliban that he is going to be tortured to death. Not a quick bullet to the head, tortured to death. And I'm sure this goes not just for this guy, but for a lot of Afghans who worked with us during our 20-year war in that country. And the State Department supposedly has a program that's going to facilitate getting these people out of Afghanistan. It is not working. It is not happening. And I'm pretty sure you've got the usual bureaucratic, arrogant, bureaucratic misfeasance that the State Department is famous for. And if, if Joe Biden doesn't get on this, I can tell you, we're going to see a bunch of people come to a very bad end, people who helped us out in our 20-year war, and the, the fascists, a.k.a. Republicans, are going to blame it on Joe Biden and every other Democrat in sight. It is going to be a real debacle, and people need to contact the White House via the White House uh, email. You can just go to Google and do White House contact and send an email. I've also sent emails to my two senators, Merkley and Wyden, and my congressman, Earl Blumenauer. Yeah. People need to get active on I this. Sh- I share your concerns. Uh, Vote Vets is very, very active with this as well. And and there are other organizations that are on it. And, and it looks like the Biden administration is starting to move. We need to keep up the pressure. Zeke, thank you. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Exposing the con in conservative. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Boy, a lot going on in the world today, isn't it? Just a fascinating time to be alive. I am I'm excited. Um, So, you know, whatever is on your mind, uh, there's a a number of things on mine. I'll just touch a couple of quick points. The the number one, Brett Kavanaugh, the FBI opened a tip line and they received over 4,500 specific tips and allegations of criminal behavior on the part of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, some of it involving sexual assault, some of it involving drunkenness, some of it involving apparently gambling. Really, we don't know. I mean, there, there are a couple of credible folks who have come forward and told the press that they told the FBI or they left messages on the tip line that they had specifics. 
and they've shared what those specifics are. And they tend to fall into these buckets here. But it all got turned over to Christopher Wray, who is, uh, was made FBI director by Donald Trump and is still FBI director. And Christopher Wray said, oh, look at this, 4,500 credible allegations, 4,500 allegations, probably, you know, a, a good number of them were probably just, you know, people saying whatever they were saying. But here's 4,500 of these uh, after they've gone through at least some kind of primary filtering. What do we do with them? So Christopher Wray said, well, let's give them to Donald Trump and let him investigate them. So they passed them off to the White House. Right. Let's just keep in mind what was going on in 2018 when this happened. It was the summer of 2018. November was coming. The Republicans controlled the Senate by one vote, 51 to 49. And the concern was that, you know, the Supreme Court at that point in time was 5-4 with conservatives in the ascendancy. And if any of the Supreme Court justices were to, uh, on the right, if any of the five right-wingers were to become incapacitated or whatever, Clarence Thomas is so ethically compromised, the possibility of him having to step down or even being criminally indicted, it just constantly hangs over him. Alito is a fairly old guy. Thomas is an old guy. So basically, their concern was, as they were looking at the election of 2018, and a very real possibility of losing the Senate in that election. This was the midterm election. That if they lost the Senate in November, and then, you know, a few weeks later, Clarence Thomas kicks off or gets indicted or something, then they might be blocked for two years and getting, just like they blocked Merrick Garland, they, Democrats in the Senate would block them until Joe Biden becomes president, and then there would be a liberal on the court. And then, then the court would be 5-4 liberals, and it could reverse Citizens United. And it could reverse Shelby County, you know, Citizens United, which said that corporations are people and money is, billionaires' money is free speech. It could reverse Shelby County, the decision where Justice, Chief Justice Roberts said, oh, there's no more racism in America. Just look at the White House. There's a black man there. There's no, you know, we don't need to do, you know, we don't need to stop states from suppressing the black vote. Are you kidding? So, you know, a 5-4 liberal Supreme Court, which was entirely possible, could have reversed that. A 5-4 liberal Supreme Court could have said, you know, abortion rights that were defined in Roe v. Wade, we're going to double down on that and say, uh, you know, this is solid. It's going to stay that way for a generation. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of areas. Uh, voting rights, they could double down on that. There was so much that could be done, so much of the damage ever since the court took this hard right turn in 1972 with the appointment of Lewis Powell on the court. There's so much damage that has been done to America by the Supreme Court since that time that could have been reversed. And so they were like, oh, my God, we got to do something. And then on top of that, you had Anthony Kennedy on the court. He was one of the five conservatives. He was a Reagan appointee. In fact, he was appointed to replace Lewis Powell, ironically. But Kennedy voted with the liberals on abortion, on civil rights, on affirmative action, on gay marriage. I mean, Kennedy was this huge disappointment to the conservatives. And Kennedy's son, Justin, just happened to work at Deutsche Bank in the division that had given over a billion dollars in loans to Donald Trump. At the same time that the bank was being investigated for laundering hundreds of billions or tens of billions of dollars 
of uh, Russian mafia and Russian oligarch money. So the question, why did Kennedy resign? Just in time for a summer session of the United States Senate in 2018 so that the Republicans could jam Brett Kavanaugh on the court. And then when it comes out that the guy's got, you know, some, somehow when he was making 60,000 bucks a year working in the Bush White House, co-authoring torture memos, it is alleged the White House withheld all of his paperwork from when he worked in the Bush White House. So we have no idea, really. But, you know, how is it that when he was making 60,000 bucks a year in the White House, that he bought a $1.2 million house with a $250,000, $240,000 down payment and sent two of his kids to $10,500 a year private schools and paid $94,000 to join a country club when he had, you know, $30,000 with a credit card debt that seems to be related to gambling expenses. What's going on here? And that was back in 2006 when he first got put on the federal bench. And then, you know, in 2018, it's like, okay, now he's got, a, he, now he's up to $200,000 in gambling debts on his credit cards. We still can't figure out how he's paying for his house. Although he's, he was making more money as a federal judge then, but still, you know, not what he would make on the Supreme Court. And somebody just pays it off. What's going on? And now we find out that the, that the, uh, the, 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 the whole Trump White House and Christopher Wray and the FBI said, ah, you know, no need to investigate Brett Kavanaugh. They never even interviewed Christine Blasey Ford. They never interviewed Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, you know, when you get a security clearance, they interview you. Oh, no, we don't need to talk to him. He's good. So first you get Gorsuch, who took Merrick Garland's seat. That should have been a liberal seat. That would have flipped the court to the, well, actually it would have, yeah, it could have flipped the court to the left. And that's arguably why, why McConnell was so, you know, because it was replacing Antonin Scalia. And then you get, so, so Gorsuch has this big asterisk next to his name because Obama actually appointed somebody. And then, and then we get Kavanaugh. And then, again, and, and then of course, you know, as, as uh, Trump is leaving office, uh, the rush to put Amy Coney Barrett on the court. And again, you know, no serious vetting, no serious examination, no serious what's going on. Congress needs to get to the bottom of this. You know, Sheldon Whitehouse is all over this. The senator from Rhode Island, he is seriously upset about this and is calling it out. God bless him. But, you know, we need to unpack this court. Will it happen? I don't know. I am hopeful. The Supreme Court's actually easy to fix. All we have to do is Congress simply says, the Supreme Court, you have to follow all rules and regulations all the federal justices have to follow. Yes. Thomas that would be gone. That would, that would, that would gone. get Thomas out of there overnight. You're absolutely right. And Congress yeah. has the power to do that. They can, right now, the, the federal court code of ethics, the code of ethics for, for the federal judiciary, has an exception. It does not apply to the Supreme to Court. The Supreme Court. And yeah. it, it would be, you know, a three-line... Well, it probably it might be a little more complicated than that, but it would basically just be a few sentences in a very simple piece of legislation to say that all of the ethics requirements 
and rules that apply to right, you know, regular federal judges also apply to Supreme Court justices. And, uh, you know, that should be at the top. That's great, Paul. I'm, I'm totally with you. And that should be at the top of the legislative agenda for Pelosi and Schumer. Joe in Cupertino. Hey, Joe, what's up? Tom, thank you so much for Bernie. I just can't say that you get less articulate as you get older. He's just as sharp as he was the first time I met him. Yeah. I called regarding your topic of today. I read an article, I forget if it was yesterday or the day before, about this very, very well-positioned politician in Massachusetts. She's the head, was the head of the Republican Party, and she apparently came down with COVID-19 and expired, unfortunately. Mm. But it was very telling because... You know, she was like the kingmaker, like Sununu in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. This lady was the big shot in Massachusetts. And on her deathbed, she was talking to the number two guy. She believed Trump the whole time. She thought, you know, she was an old-time Republican, but she started to conform to the QAnon type of thing. And as she lost her life, the prior party in Massachusetts said, wait a minute, this is wrong. And so I think that's why you're starting to see a lot of the politicians going, well, you know, the main Republican Party, their former base, are dying in such numbers. Well, this is what an earlier die. caller said, that it's the Vietnam effect, that that by the mid uh, mid to late 1960s, uh, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I lived through this. I would say probably 67 was the year that it all turned. Um, uh, we reached a critical mass, essentially, a tipping point, where so many American families, some critical percentage was hit, 5%, 10%, 20%, I don't know what it is, but enough American families had somebody who had died in Vietnam or was in Vietnam and they were afraid they were going to die, that they started saying, hey, wait a minute, why are we over there anyway? And that's when support for the for the war just disintegrated. That was when Walter Cronkite basically, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, when you've lost Walter Cronkite, you've lost America, uh, when Walter Cronkite yeah. came out against the war. I think the same thing is happening right now with COVID. Enough people have know somebody who died, you know, that it's it's like, that's it. You think, Joe? Well, I hope that this gets health care for everyone then. If that's yeah. the worst thing, I hope this changes the country around and we go to universal health care. I agree. Congratulations on your book. Thank I you, Joe. I can't wait to read it. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate the call. Uh, it's, uh, oh, it's the end of the show, isn't it? <laughs> Looking there at the time for a time check. Thanks so much for being with us today. What a day. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us. And there's some great organizations out there you can participate with, uh, not to mention the Democratic Party. So get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 